the man himself, Sean Michelle, is here with The Antidote. Sean, it's great to have you with us. I appreciate you having me, man. It's fun. Your Facebook site describes your music as truth, soul, and rock and roll. Care to expand upon that? Uh, yeah, man. Um, that's kind of a little catchphrase me and my boys came up with a while back. And, um, you know, we were trying to sum up in a real simple way, like, what drives what we do. And as far as uh, music, but not just our music, man, but uh, about our life, too. And um, I think the music and a person's life needs to tie in really closely together. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think that's what makes it more real to the audience and to the listener. And I think, you know, not just nowadays, but but ever since the beginning of time, I mean, people can smell from a mile away when somebody's being fake, you know? And uh, so our biggest concern is just being real with one another and being real with, with God, honestly, and, and being real with ourselves that way it makes it easier, I feel like, to be real with the audience. And so we try to portray that in everything we do with the truth, you know, and, and with soul, you know. Actually, I was born in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, on, on the mouth of the Mississippi. And uh, so, you know, I mean, down there, the culture is just very different than a lot of other places in the, in the U.S. And the, I mean, the people there and the culture is just so uh, real. And just welcoming as well, you know, like the people down there. I mean, people in New Orleans are known to be pretty crazy. and uh, But it's a good crazy, you know what I'm saying? It's like uh, they're not afraid to express who they really are. And so that's always been a part of my life and my family as well, my growing up. And, and I guess that's the reason why I connect with a lot of music that's like that, you know, just soul and, and passion and, you know, rock and roll because uh, – you know, all those elements kind of blend in together, you know, as far as, you know, rock and roll essentially being rooted within the blues and blues essentially being rooted within the gospel. Uh, if you really take it back far enough um, with slaves who were brought over here, you know, a couple hundred years or so, go 300 years or so. And so, you know, that's kind of just in a nutshell, three easy, three easy words that, that say a lot, but you can unpack it for, for quite a while, you know. Uh, but that's, that's who we try to be, man, true soul and rock and roll uh, all the time, every time we're on stage or any time we're in a studio uh, laying down songs and, and writing songs. We try to keep those three elements within everything we do. We have to admit that blending your sort of retro rock and blues doesn't really fit with the mainstream. Is that harsh? Uh, no, no, I mean, well, it depends on which mainstream we're talking about, you know. I guess North American radio mainstream, that's for sure. Yeah, well, you know, in some ways, honestly, I feel like lately, I mean, if you looked at the Grammys a couple of years ago, it's funny to me, man, like, I don't understand people's uh, marketing approaches when it comes to music, uh, because, you know, a couple of years ago in the Grammys, most of the main acts throughout the whole program were... Uh, you know, like Jack White or the Black Keys or, you know, Alabama Shakes, the chick from, from that band was performing. And I mean, you just had all this like very roots, uh, whether it was either Americana or uh, just straight rock and roll or very heavily blues influenced rock and roll. And it seems to be like that has caught on quite a bit in the last few years. And it's become 
very popular, but for some reason it's still not completely mainstream. It's winning a lot of awards and stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, as far as like within just regular, you know, radio, I feel like has been given a lot more uh, respect. Now within like any kind of market that might call itself like Christian or something like that, like, no, it's not even close. But that, that whole market is, I think, 20 years behind the times, honestly. And it's kind of always been like that, which is pretty sad. But, but yeah, I guess it's not exactly the most mainstream market for sure. Does that ever make you feel like you're a man out of place and time? Yeah, yeah, sometimes it does. But honestly, I mean, even though sometimes I, I feel kind of out of place with what we do, you know, uh, I guess ACDC said best, you know, rock and roll is never going to die. And so you kind of always count on the fact that it's always going to kind of circle around back to rock and roll. And, you know, some some artists, they'll be doing their, their work and, and playing shows and, you know, making albums for years and they don't ever get any kind of like real recognition until like much later. And people are like, man, this dude's amazing. And it's like, well, this dude has been amazing for 40 years and you never <laughs> saw him. And, and that 40 years just made him even that much better on the tail end because they've been through so much and, and fought so much, you know, and that, that shows in their music. Uh, we always compare what we do to, to slow-cooked barbecue. You know, I, I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas now. We're real close to Memphis, Tennessee. And every time we pass through Memphis, we always stop at this place called Blue City Cafe. They have the best uh, pork ribs on the planet. And, man, there's just something about, you know, things in life when they're slow cooked, when they're done right. It, it always comes out tasting the best. So, I don't know, maybe our music's a little bit like slow cooked barbecue. It's true, because, I mean, some artists as the age, you know, sometimes even do better. I, I can think of Leonard Cohen recently playing Toronto with for a pair of dates. And critics just went nuts over it. Yeah. All I heard was fantastic reviews or, well, we play Mavis Staples on this yeah. show. And I mean, and yeah. she's just dynamic. Just got a phenomenal voice. And she's, what, mid-70s now? Yeah, she's about 76. I, I saw her a couple times. Well, two, the past two years, I saw her. The last time I saw her was actually uh, a year ago. And, uh, man, she was 76. And she came out there on a cane. And she was kind of wincing a little bit, you know, you could tell she was in some pain, and, you know, but she, she put the cane down and she performed, man. I mean, she killed it and she never sat down except for, you know, when the band did their solo stuff and uh, she had a knee replacement surgery six weeks prior to that show. And she just did a whole show on a, a knee that had just been like through a major surgery and she brought the house down, man. And, and, Watching that, I was just like, I have no excuse ever uh, before a show to be like, oh, I can't perform. Or, I mean, it was just beautiful. And I, I saw uh, Buddy Guy also this past year for the second time. And him as well, man, like the older that guy gets, man, it's just like the better he gets. And, and you kind of wonder, like, how could he be any better? Because, I mean, he's been amazing since the, since the 60s, so... Well, here, you're talking about really some of the people that, you know, you're impressed by now, some of the seniors that are in the field. Who inspired you in your younger years? <laughs> uh, well, in my younger years, it was kind of sad. I, I was inspired by, like, boys to men. Um, and like, <laughs> Oh, you're going to admit that. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, I'm not too afraid to admit it. I mean, you know, I, I grew up in the, I was born in 79, man. I grew up in the 80s. And okay. there, wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot in the 80s, man, to really be pulling from, I guess. And if it was, you just didn't hear that much of it, depending on what circles you ran into, you know. And, um, I grew up in a musical family, but it was all kept in the closet kind of deal. Um, like my parents were both in, in high school band and stuff. And but I mean, as soon as they graduated, they they put their instruments away and never touched them again, and they never really instilled music in me at all. So it kind of had to come to me from different sources, and uh, you know, also actually have a great uncle who is a pretty well-known uh, jazz clarinet player. He played with Al Hurt for like years, and uh, he was Al Hurt's right-hand man, you know. And he died when I was about five or six years old. He died in about eighty-five. I mean, I knew a little bit about him, but I never, you know, that was never brought up to me or I didn't hear very many stories about him at all until much later. Um, so, yeah, my influences were real narrow at first, but it was it was always black American music. That's what really heavily influenced me. And so when I was a kid, I loved singing and I would always just try to mimic, you know, to me, that's what I really connected with musically and not just, I mean, just everything inside, inwardly. I connected with uh, black American music, whether it was like soul or R&B or, uh, you know, I didn't hear a whole lot of blues when I was little, but that's what I connected with. And so that's what I tried to emulate and imitate as well whenever I would sing as a kid. And I guess to make our listeners aware is that, yeah, you're not black, you are white. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm white in skin, but uh, I think there's an old black lady inside of me trying to trying to get out every time when I... <laughs> <laughs> when I play. So, uh, yeah, I have a tendency to shake my hips a little too much and, you know, do the whole Elvis pelvis thing when I'm playing. But uh, that's just, again, like I said, I mean, it, that's just all taken from what I've felt inside since I was a kid, you know. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, you know, I was like five or six years old and I'd go to these uh, these little pizza joints. They'd be showing videos of Michael Jackson and stuff and People are sitting down eating, and I'd go dance from table to table and, and do the moonwalk and do the centipede and stuff and break dance, and, you know, people would give me money as a little kid. So, you know, I was always, you know, singing and dancing and just performing in front of people, you know. And now it just carries on later on in life. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit more controlled, I guess, in a sense. Uh, you mean no more moonwalk? Uh, well, actually... I don't know. Every once in a while, I'll pull out a little moonwalk move while I'm playing my guitar. So I figure if I can mesh moonwalking like Michael Jackson while playing guitar like Buddy Guy or Jimi Hendrix, which I'll never touch those dudes. But if I could blend those two elements together and plus sing like Mavis Staples, I think, I think I'll be in a good place. Well, let's get around to your music because getting the music of Sean Michelle is not the easiest thing because... You often release only on cassette or vinyl, but why choose vinyl over digital? Well, I guess in 2011, we released a record called uh, Back to the Delta, and we only released that record on cassette tape and vinyl, but there was a special reason behind that. You know, the cassette tapes and the vinyls both had digital download cards with them, but um, so you could put them on your, you know, your iPod or whatever. Uh, but the reason we released it only in those mediums and we and we didn't release it on iTunes or anything like that was because uh, that was a special project for us. We were trying to get back in touch with the roots music that inspired us so much in the beginning. And uh, 
we had kind of been losing our way as a band and and just i was i was kind of just spastic all over the map as far as music was concerned and my good friend jay uh who happens to be my manager was trying to help me refocus and, and get back to the roots and so what we did was we found a hundred year old church in rolling fork mississippi which is the same town muddy waters is born in it's right there smack dab in the middle of the delta and uh this church was kind enough to uh let us come in and use their old sanctuary which was like there was no pews in there it was just hard wooden floors and high vaulted ceilings and and uh we wanted to write songs and record songs in the way that a lot of the artists that we were inspired by. So we wrote everything on that record, stripped down on a, on a steel resonator that I had at my house uh, with Slide and did this old school Delta kind of feel. And I based everything on that album off of an album named Amazing Grace by Mississippi Fred McDowell. And it's kind of a hard album to find, honestly. But... It's just him on a guitar singing with one other uh, male vocalist and then three uh, female vocalists. And so when you hear our Back to the Delta record, I got four background singers. I got one male, three female that I was friends with that were really good. And, uh, you know, everything was done acoustically, whether it was stomping on the floor, clapping our hands or hitting a snare drum or... uh, My drummer's dad is one of the best harmonica players I've ever heard live. And he did all the harp work on there. And so we hired a guy from Nashville, Tennessee, who would take all tape gear to remote locations and record. And so we did everything live to tape on that album. So everything you hear on that album from start to finish was mixed live to tape. It wasn't just recorded live to tape at the same time. It was mixed, which means there was no changing of anything. We didn't go back in a studio and do post-production work or or recut in a vocal here or add in a guitar part here. Everything you hear on that record happened at that moment, at that time, which is how all those old recordings were done. And so we wanted to feel what that was like ourselves, doing it ourselves, putting ourselves in those people's shoes, putting ourselves in those people's surroundings um, where the, where they grew up and lived and where they suffered and wrote all these songs. And that's what we did. And so we only wanted to release it within that medium of analog recording. So that's why we did what we did there. That's a tough process to do, though. You really don't have second chances. Yeah, you don't. I mean, it's it's one of those deals where, you know, and that's what we do. You know, some of the stuff we wrote at the church while we were recording it, and I'd have to go in and rehearse it with the singers, rehearse it with everybody a couple times, two, three times. And while we were rehearsing, the engineer we use, his name's Chris Mara, and uh, he runs a studio in Nashville called Welcome to 1979. It's an all-analog-based studio. And, uh, you know, as we were rehearsing it, he would get a feel for how the song was going to sound and what we were going to do and what I was going to do vocally or whatever. He would adjust on the fly. Once we do the final take, he would mix, you know, on the fly like that, which there's not a whole lot of people that do that anymore. And so, yeah, everything was real, uh, you know, off the cuff. And it allowed for you to have mistakes within the song. And sometimes mistakes are some of the greatest character marks of a song, you know, and it becomes a part of the experience. About Back to the Delta, the main reason we record it to analog and then never really release it on iTunes or anything is because we wanted people to have the album experience. Like you had to listen to side A and then you had to listen to side B. And we put the record together that way specifically. And the crazy thing was 
was we didn't realize it until we were about to go record the album or actually after we recorded the album basically we'd written all these songs acoustically and um we were trying to make it feel old school have that old school delta gospel blues uh vibe you know i've just been writing these songs kind of randomly from what i thought in my head you know like jose blues and death knocking and all this stuff and then i was gonna put a cover of when the saints go marching in on it because i'm from new orleans originally uh i have a, a good friend who asked me to play a show and he wanted me to cover that song and i was like all right i'll try to do a cover for it and i did one that was upbeat or whatever and like like the dixieland jazz style and i liked it i liked what we came up with well when we we're about to go record my manager, he was like, I want you to do a broken down, mournful version of that song. And I was like, what? Yeah, like it, it, it kind of floored me. I was like, first of all, I've never heard that done. And second of all, I don't think that song was meant to be like that. And then he fired back YouTube videos and, and some history on the song. And come to find out, uh, Bruce Springsteen had a really slowed down, mournful version of the song. And... Uh, it was originally written as a funeral dirge, as the hymn, you know. And so a lot of times in New Orleans, I found this out through a little bit of research, but in New Orleans when they have these funerals and they would sing when the saints go marching in mournfully to the grave as a funeral dirge, when they would lower the casket and do the service, then afterwards when they would return back to their homes, they would do the Dixieland jazz style, which was the upbeat version. And it was to symbolize the walk to death and then the, re the victorious resurrection march. And so the crazy thing was when I found that out, I started looking at all the songs that we had written and I was like, you gotta be kidding me, man. And it was one of those like God things just kind of was like, here you go, I gave this to you. All the songs we had written, we had five that had this funeral dirge feel that was all about death, all about losing something, all about mourning. And then we had these five songs that were victorious and about resurrection and they were upbeat and we were just like dude we got to do it this way so we book into the album first song and the last song with the two different versions the death and the resurrection of when the saints go marching in and side a is the walk to the grave and then side b when you flip it over and listen to it is the resurrection victory march out of the grave so that's why we put those songs together in that order that's cool what a great idea yeah i mean it doesn't sell records but it's a fun idea <laughs> <laughs> that's it you're taking artistic liberties <laughs> yeah that's what happens when you're, when you're independent and you have a record label i speak with a wide range of artists who share a christian faith but sean your music is particularly christ-centered i guess my question is are you a preacher or are you a musician yes good answer <laughs> <laughs> uh yes um yeah, man. I mean, I, we don't label our music Christian, although although it's blatantly as far as like lyrical content, um, it's heavily focused on on Jesus. And uh, but honestly, the way we present it and the way we we write the songs, it's it's heavily gospel. You know, we we like to call it gospel rock and roll or, or gospel blues because honestly, in the truest form, that's it's more of that than Christian. And these days when you say Christian music, it just brings up all these, you know, images in people's minds, you know what I'm saying? And so you have to kind of be delicate with what you call yourself. 
And not to say that we're ashamed of it that way and we don't want to be called that. It's just, I feel like, you know, saying that our music is gospel rock and roll uh, is a lot more accurate to the roots that we come from, which is all gospel stuff uh, from back in the 30s and 40s and, and on up. And most of that being gospel blues. I mean, you know, the people like Blind Willie Johnson, who was a major influence on me, uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell, who wasn't necessarily gospel, but he had a, I mean, he had a gospel record called Amazing Grace that's phenomenal. You know, and all that Skip James, all these old blues guys, they, they did a lot of gospel stuff as well. Um, I mean, even B.B. King, you can look back to some through his stuff. He's got this amazing uh, gospel record that I love. Anyway, yeah, we, we're connected more with gospel. As far as am I a preacher or a musician, like I said earlier, you know, I feel like every artist, if they're real with their audience, they're trying to convey who they are from the inside out. And uh, so I just try to put down in a song what is coming from the inside of me. And, and that's usually always rooted in my relationship with Jesus and with God. And whether it's, you know, the happy times or the times where I'm struggling with a lot of crap or I'm uh, struggling with my own demons. And uh, a lot of times that can preach to people, you know, or to encourage them or challenge them or whatever. And so I'm just trying to be true to who I am and what I'm going through. And, you know, I let the songs kind of do the rest of the work for other people. To follow up on that, then what type of venues are you playing at? You do in the bar scene? You do church festivals or how, what yes. do you cover yes <laughs> all of this the whole bit Man, yeah we, uh i think the only place we haven't played is a gas station bathroom uh <laughs> other than that i mean i've played i mean everywhere man we we play a lot of bars we play a lot of clubs and venues we play a lot of you know christian festivals we haven't really been able to break out into you know any kind of mainstream quote-unquote secular I, I hate using the phrase i know christian and secular I, I just why can't we just call it a music festival you know and it's not just christians doing that it's it's people in the secular realms or whatever doing that and they've been doing that for years and to me i'm just like it's stupid if it's good music and if it's good art you like it either way man i mean i'm a believer you know i'm a follower of jesus but i love a good black sabbath record you know, I love ACDC, you know, those dudes were making killer tunes, man. And I respect their art form and what they want to, the way they went about things and the way that they recorded things. And, and you learn from those things. And I also love a lot of gospel and older Christian records. Um, you know, and to me, I just, I don't care. You know, I don't care if it was Christian or secular. I mean, stop putting up those labels. And I think labels hinder all of us from, uh, truly being able to experience, you know, what the artist is trying to convey. That's where sometimes I have qualms about even doing this program because I'm sort of perpetuating all of that too. Well, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes that's good though, because I think there's people out there that need to be a part of a part of culture that is clearing up misconceptions. And a lot of times that's what we do, man. When we go and play these bars or whatever, a, a lot of what we're doing, man, is clearing up misconceptions. You know, people have these images of who they think Jesus is or who they think a Christian is. And a lot of those are kind of justified, honestly, man, from past experiences that they've had. And a lot of those are negative. And that's, that's a shame that the church, we have done that. But 
you know, we go into a place and we try to rock out with everything that we have and we, we let everything out on the stage, man. And uh, no holds bars and just no no punches held. And people connect with that, man. And they, they might not be believers. I, I had a friend who had, she had a friend in the audience and who was a really talented musician. But he was a great songwriter, great musician. And he came to one of our uh, album release shows for, for Electric Delta, which was a follow-up to Back to Delta. And he was just like, man, like, so he looked at her and was like, eh, these dudes are Christians. And she was like, yeah, yeah. And he was like, man, I don't believe in that, but I believe they believe it. And that was, you know, just a little way to maybe help people understand that like Christians don't all look like this one bad experience you had. Um, or Jesus doesn't look like this guy that may have abused you when you were a kid and called themselves a Christian. You know, and maybe this program can help with that in the area of music to help people who aren't uh, necessarily Christians. It might help them feel like, yeah, I could actually listen to this music. <laughs> it's good music, you know. Yeah, thanks for that. I'm going to go back. The first time I ever heard your music was on your 2010 album, I Know I've Been Converted. You did a number of classic Christian songs like Victory and Jesus and Amazing Grace. I don't know if you would call them covers, but anyway, why did you feel that these songs needed a retelling? Uh, well, well, first off, that, that whole album was kind of spawned from a moment in my life where I actually went back, originally started playing blues. Because before then, I was you know doing more of this like indie, soulful rock and roll thing. I, I'd been torn for like four years with a group of guys I was writing these songs, man, that weren't really me fully, you know. They might have been me lyrically, but like song structure-wise and just music, it wasn't who I was. And I knew that, but I didn't know it completely. I didn't know how to express it, but I knew something was missing. And those guys played with me for, you know, a solid four years or so, and then they, they all quit and they, or they had different things that they had to do. And my whole band was dismantled, man. And right about the time I was going to lose my job and I lost a lot of other things. And it was a really dark period in, in my life. And right around that time, my manager was talking about this idea of finding these old hymns that we loved and that we grew up singing, but doing them this old blues way or gospel way. And I thought it was a great idea at first, but at this point in my life, first of all, I was super depressed, but also I didn't really know how to play the blues, you know, uh, and I kind of lost touch with, you know, singing black or sounding black as far as the music was concerned. And so I told my manager, I was like, I'm not going to be able to do any kind of record like that. There's no way. I'm just not feeling it. And plus, I don't even know how to play the, the stuff anyway. And right about that time, you know, I was selling these records door to door out in the cold in January and February, freezing cold rain. And I was just miserable, man. But some, you know, they say you got to have the blues before you can, you know, really play the blues or whatever. And so that might have been my time where I was starting to have the blues, and I was reunited with a with a younger kid that was in this uh, church youth group that I was working with, and he was a young kid that could play really well. He would eat, drink, and sleep the blues, man. Like as far as the music was concerned, so he started giving me a bunch of old blues music to listen to. And that's when it started getting back into my head and getting back into my heart. And then it started dictating the way I played music. And that began the journey of getting to where we're at now with the music. Um, 
I slowly began to take on that sound. And I know I've been converted was the record that was the first uh, kind of transformation of that or the first uh, manifestation of that, if you will. Um, Cause it's still kind of white in my book. You know, if I go back and listen to it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't really getting into my true voice yet, but you know, we were doing a lot of the, the old hymns and that was the basis of that record was doing all these old hymns, but redoing them the way that we started feeling like we had to play them, you know? So that's, that's kind of how that album was formed. I was hunting out some more of your music online and I find you did this one song called Raise the Dead for something called The Christian Zombie Killer's Handbook. You gotta <laughs> fill me in. What's that all about? Uh, yeah, that was a, a book that a, a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas wrote. And uh, he had the brilliant idea of doing a soundtrack with the book. So whenever you bought the book, you could go to the website and you know digitally download uh this record this compilation record of a bunch of different artists that he knew and so he asked us to be part of that compilation and and we thought it was a really cool idea and so we wanted to write a song that kind of was in line with what he was trying to uh, express within the book we didn't want to just do an old song that we'd been doing for a while so we wrote a song for that project in particularly and it was an old riff that I'd had a couple years before that that I liked a lot, but I never really did anything with it. And so I felt like that was the best time to do something with it. So we wrote a song around it. Do you meet very many zombies in your church, Sean? <laughs> um, I can't answer that question. <laughs> I can't answer it truthfully. I can't answer either. Otherwise, we'd both get into trouble. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was a fun song to do. And honestly, that song, we did that song after I know I've been converted and that song, you can kind of see the progression of, of kind of where we were going and, you know, artists are constantly morphing anyway. And especially from like 2010, when we did, I know I've been converted to that raise the dead song and then to back to the Delta, which was all acoustic, then to electric Delta a year later, which was, you know, basically songs from Back to the Delta done electrically with some new ones that we wrote. That's, there's a whole other story there. But, um, you know, I guess in four years, we've done a lot of drastic, uh, not extremely drastic, but we, we've done some, some changing. And I think that's just part of the process of finding your sound and finding who you are at the time and, and trying to lay that down on, on an album. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting doing Electric Delta. Because that was, of course, your latest album. Yeah. But as you say, it carried on from Back to the Delta, even re-recording some of those tracks, but you really amped up the sound. Yeah, yeah. So what happened with us was, you know, we did Back to the Delta, the acoustic thing, but, you know, we were a three-piece electric band. And so, you know, we toured for eight months on these songs that we had written acoustically. So naturally, they turned into rock and roll you know, blues, rock and roll, which is what happened in history. You know, um, you had a lot of these old black guys that were doing the blues and moving to Chicago or wherever. And, uh, you know, the electric guitar was invented. And then you gave these blues guys electric guitars and then bam, you know, out came rock and roll. Uh, and so we kind of got to experience that within our own lives through writing back to the Delta and touring on that for, you know, a year. And these songs begin to morph. 
And so we took like five songs that we really liked and that translated well from Back to the Delta to Electric three-piece band, and we re-recorded them. But then we also wrote six new songs as well, and that's what compiles Electric Delta. So it's just a natural progression of flow. So usually the best way to listen to Electric Delta is to listen to Back to the Delta first, to try to get in the full journey of what we were experiencing, you know. So is it actually possible to get a copy still of Back to the Delta? Uh, yes, we, uh, we have. Uh, well, we sold out of our vinyls, but we have cassette tape. And they come with digital download cards. We're still trying to figure out what we're going to do once we sell out of the, out of the album on this run. Um, because we'd like to make it more accessible to everyone, but we also kind of want to keep it, you know, its unique feel. So I don't know if we're going to re- ever release it on iTunes, but we'll probably have a way where people can just stream it. But as of right now, yeah, you can still get, they'd have to go to our, our music page on Facebook or something like that and then go to the store and they can order it online. I want to get some of your thoughts on some of the songs found on Electric Delta. One song that just really threw me was the opening lyrics on Hosea Blues. And I can't do the accent, so you're just going to have to bear with me. My baby girl ain't nothing but a fiery hoe, wandering places she never should go, opens her legs to them men's so she won't go pole. Maybe she don't know is them men's could never save her soul. But maybe you should explain the intention of those lyrics. Uh, it's all about sex. Oh, really? I mean, uh, yeah, man. Hosea Blues, man, like the song, the title kind of gives away a little clue about what the song's about. And if anybody knows anything about much about the Bible or anything like that, there's a book in the Bible called Hosea. And uh, I'd been reading that book at the time when I started writing that song. And I'd read it before, but it'd been a long time Uh when I got into the book again, man, it was just really like heart wrenching, man. And it's pretty dirty book. Honestly, it's, it's, it's one of the Bible's rated R book, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, I felt like it was a perfect, uh, blues story, man, you know, just betrayal and adultery. And that's what that whole book is about. But ultimately it's, it's about our betrayal and, and adultery against God and who is our ultimate lover. And so anyway, I wanted to try to capture that in a song and display that, you know, but not necessarily like God talking to Israel, but the way Hosea puts it inside the book, which is a man and a woman. And so, you know, it sounds like a brokenhearted love song between a man who, whose woman keeps stepping out on him and, and hoeing around town. But honestly, it, it's God telling the human race, this is what you've been doing to me. Uh, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you back. And so, I mean, a lot of the imagery, a lot of the phrases that are in that song are taken directly from the book. So in a lot of ways, I'm just quoting scripture, you know, and, you know, so some people that might be Christians or whoever, you know, they might be, oh, that's a little risque, you know, I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm just quoting them. I'm quoting the Bible. You're going <laughs> to just take it up with the Bible if you have problems with it, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, that's where we were coming from with that song just the ultimate blues feel, you know, the old school blues feel of betrayal and adultery and, and how that made the man feel and what he intended to do about it. Another song I really enjoyed, River Song, but it's very different stylistically from the rest of Electric Delta, yeah. or at least it was in my eyes. 
Do you want to describe it? Um, the River Song was actually one of my favorite uh, songs to write and to record on the record. You know, it is stylistically a bit different. And, you know, I suppose it's because it's a ballad, you know. And uh, when you're telling a story, you want to tell it slow. And you want to make sure that you can really paint a realistic picture for the people you're trying to tell the story to. And you want to actually take them there. And so I think that's why stylistically it was a lot different, you know. Um, I mean, I sing on that song, but it's more like talking and singing, you know. And I wanted it to have that feel of just like, you know, everybody in the living room or around a campfire, you know, everybody's just in a circle and and one person's telling their experience uh, of what they had about when they went down to the river and and, uh, their life was changed. And, you know, there's a lot of people that I feel like can relate to that song every time we play it live. uh, You know, I just it's one of the only songs we play live that I see people in the audience, even if they've never heard the song before, they'll start singing the chorus by the second time I get to the chorus. You know, we wanted to accomplish that because we wanted to make it simple and boil it down in a way to where people can really grasp the story we're trying to convey and the picture we're trying to paint with the words we use, the imagery that we uh, captured in the verses and the way we kind of paint the picture musically. Uh, with the tones we use, uh, like you said, the speed and the way that we deliver it. And that's why I use a lot of tremolo on the guitar and stuff is to try to give that watery feel and just really put people back in that place because a lot of people were baptized at a river or or they had family members that were. And so, you know, I wanted to make it feel old-fashioned and I wanted it to feel old-timey and just taking people back and putting them in that experience as much as we could so that's kind of why we went the direction we went with that song now sean i really think that you should be shot for recording unbelievable because <laughs> that's one of the catchiest songs i have ever heard i mean you play it once and it just keeps running through your head all day long but it seems like you set it up to be almost a traditional single but are you ever concerned about actually producing singles uh i mean yeah if i can write a hit song that'd be freaking rad <laughs> i'm not gonna lie you know what i'm saying like uh and i'm not gonna try to sound like you know i'm too artsy fartsy to try to write a single i think i mean heck all the great songs that we love in the past in rock and roll they were all singles you know that's all they used to write were singles they didn't even write albums until you know the late 60s uh early 70s but up until that point it was all singles and so, yeah, I mean, Unbelievable was a riff that uh, two guys in my band, uh, Seth and Bradley, uh, my drummer and bass player, they were the ones who kind of wrote that riff. And then they showed it to me and I was like, dude, that's pretty killer. And, uh, you know, then I kind of took it and we kind of morphed it a little bit to kind of fit the way I would sing to it. And then uh, I just had that hook, Unbelievable, it's unbelievable, it's unbelievable, in my head. So, you know, Jay, my good friend, uh, he and I, a lot of times we write lyrics together. And so I was like, dude, I'm keeping that, I'm keeping that hook. I, I, that, that's the hook. You know, I was like, I got to keep it. So we need, we need to base something off of that phrase. It's unbelievable, which, you know, it's kind of weird because, um, you know, sometimes a song will just come to you, you know, and the whole song, music, words, everything in like 10, 15 minutes. 
And that, that's pretty rare in my case, but I've had that happen several times. Other times, like I'll write a riff and uh, we kind of base it off that riff and then we write the music together as a band and then I'll work on the lyrics later. Uh, or sometimes it kind of works at the same time. I'm working on lyrics, you know, whatever, and, and, the, and the music. So unbelievable, we had the music and I had this hook from jamming it with my band. But then I was like, I don't really know what's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, I know it's unbelievable, but I don't know what is unbelievable. And so, you know, you have a riff that you really like, but you can't do anything with it because, you know, you're like, well, crap, I can't play this in front of people or show it to them because I don't really have any lyrical content. And to me, lyrical content, it's an important part of the song. So anyway, it was crazy because we had this one hook and then probably a couple months later, at the same time, I was telling Jay, I was like, dude, I, th I think the song needs to be about this. And he's like, you got to be kidding me. And I was like, what? He was like, I was thinking that same thing like two days ago. And then we just started unpacking it. And as we were unpacking it together, I was like, holy crap, we did have the exact same line of thought with that song. And so then the lyrics just came easily after that. Uh because we knew where we wanted to go and what we wanted to express to people. You know, that's why that song is so catchy uh, because, you know, it's got a good hook, it's got a good riff. And, you know, if I could write every song that catchy, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'd probably be in LA or some or somewhere in New York if I, if I could write a catchy hook that, uh, that often. But Driving around in your stretch limo or your just <laughs> your big brand new truck? Yeah, probably a big brand new truck. <laughs> Or actually, big brand new old vintage truck just redone. So, <laughs> so what does the future hold for Sean Michelle? You got any projects in the works? Yeah, actually, uh, we just finished recording a few months ago. Honestly, um, a new EP that we're going to try to release, and we're not really sure exactly when we're going to release it. It's done and everything. It's just uh, we're waiting on the right time to put it out there. But uh, yeah, it's a six-song EP. And it's called uh, the Rising In EP. So yeah, it's a little bit more on the rock and roll side um, because of the content and because of what we were trying to say with Rise Again. Uh, so it's a little more in your face, even a little more rock and roll than Electric Delta. So it's a little louder. The guitar is a little rowdier. So we're excited about putting it out. Now tell me that you're not going to put this one out only on vinyl. No. <laughs> It'll be vinyl and CD. I mean, it'll be like Electric Delta. You know, we did Electric Delta on vinyl and CD. And so this one will be the same way. Uh, and we got this EP done, and then we, we still have enough material for, like, two more albums. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, or, or, like, bits and pieces, you know, and definitely concepts. Uh, yeah, so there, there's a lot on the table. It's just a matter of getting it done and money. <laughs> oh, I hear you. But some guys struggle with the writing, you know, situation. You know, the way, with the way we write and the way we put things together musically and lyrically, uh, we kind of work as a team. And so it really helps, uh, you know, like the whole burden's not on me. And, and I think it makes it better, you know, if it was on me. You know, I'm not a Bob Dylan, uh, <laughs> you know, lyrically. I mean, kind of who is, you know, but with a couple other people's help that, I, that I'm close to and work with, you can tighten it up and you can make it a lot better than it would be just by myself. And so, you know, I, I welcome the teamwork and the camaraderie because it just, 
I, I just think personally it just makes makes everything better in the end. Well, I'm going to look forward to that for sure. Okay, so Sean, I'm going to get real personal with you. I was describing your music to a friend a little while ago, and then I mentioned that you probably have more hair in your beard than my entire body has ever had. <laughs> so you got to tell me, how long is it, and when did you start growing it? A uh, beard, I started growing it like in college back in about 99, 2000. Um, I grew it out for about a year and a half in college, and then I shaved it all off. Uh, my beard and my hair and everything i look like a skinhead uh and that was in like january of 2002 and so about february the next month i just started growing everything back so i've had i haven't had a clean shaven face since january of 2002 but my beard is probably like probably like four years growing you know i've just had it different lengths throughout the years but it's probably been about four years since i've really messed with it and is it down to your belt buckle yet uh, it reaches down to my, to my belly button and, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think that's about as far as they'll, it'll grow. I found out recently that, you know, each person has a terminal growth with their beard. Like it won't grow any further than that. And some's are, some people are longer than others. And so, uh, anyway, I think I've reached my, my terminal growth. The antidote has been here with Sean Michelle of Little Rock, Arkansas. Sean, it's been great speaking with you, and thanks for meeting with The Antidote. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it, man.